Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. some stuff to read. <clears throat> Let me get set up. This new iOS is... How many of you have updated the new iOS? You can't swipe anymore. That's swiper, no swiping. No? Dora the Explorer? Nobody? Okay. <coughs> Our teacher asked us what... Oh, sorry. Our teacher asked what my favorite animal was. And I said fried chicken. She said I wasn't funny. She couldn't have been right because everyone else laughed. My parents told me to always tell the truth. I did. Fried chicken is my favorite animal. I told my dad what happened and he said my teacher was probably a member of PETA. He said they love animals very much. I do too, especially chicken, pork, and beef. Anyway, my teacher sent me to the principal's office. I told him what happened and he laughed too. Then he told me not to do it again. The next day in my class, my teacher asked me what my favorite live animal was. I told her it was chicken. She asked me why, so I told her it was because you could make them into fried chicken. (laughs) She sent me back to the principal's office. He laughed and told me not to do it again. I don't understand. My parents taught me to be honest, but my teacher doesn't like it when I am. Today, my teacher asked us, What, which famous person we admire the most? I told her, Colonel Sanders. (laughs) Guess where I am now? That is funny. How many of you are going to have KFC for lunch? I will see you there. (laughs) You know, uh, many of you know I spent uh, three years in ministry school, and uh, ministry school is a really fun place, you know, because you have a diverse group of people. You have people who have been pastors for many, many years. You have people who are professionals who uh, did a mid-career switch thing and they are now in ministry school. But you also have really young people, uh, young in the faith, trying to discover Jesus, uh, haven't really cracked open the Bible. Uh, We have this really funny phenomenon uh, back in ministry school where um, Bill Johnson would get credited for a lot of the Bible. Um, People would put on their Facebook, Seek First the Kingdom of God. Bill Johnson. Uh, and it was, it was people that were trying to discover. So I made a joke. I was like, Bill, you're like the Bilbo. But he, he, he did not like it. <laughs> the Bilbo, get it? So, you know, you, you have people and, and you get like all sorts of weird statements that, that people make. Like, you know, like yesterday we heard like some people thought Jesus was an alien, you know, and, and very, very funny uh, heretical statements. But you know, one of the statements that absolutely shocked me when I was in ministry school was my friend came up to me one day and said, Andre, in and out sucks. And I was like, are you kidding me? How many of you have actually had in and out before? I tell you, man, for those of you who have not, in and out is glorious. It's, it's fast food, but it's... It's like Michelin star level, you know. You have the patty, you have fresh vegetables, you have, you have something called animal style, which, oh my gosh, it's not fit for an animal, it's fit for a king. And it's grilled onions with mayo, and they just oh, cover the whole thing. And it's beautiful. 
<laughs> and and I, I, I looked at my friend, I was like, what do you mean in and out is horrible? What do you mean? And he said, um, I went there, I had the fries, the fries were not really good. And, um, and yeah, in and out is horrible. I was like, did you have the burger? He's like, no, I didn't have the burger, I just had the fries. I was like, what? <laughs> you had the fries and then you came to the conclusion that in and out was horrible. How many of you know that the signature of the in and out franchise and restaurant is the burger, right? And to fully experience something, you have to experience what is distinctive to that to which you're trying to experience, right? If you go to Ruth's Chris and you just have the asparagus, you have not experienced Ruth's Chris, right? If you go to in and out you just have a piece of tomato, you have not experienced in and out right? To experience that to which you're trying to experience, you have to, ex- you have to experience what is distinctive to it. And we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, what is distinctive to the church? What is distinctive to us as a community of people? What is distinctive to this Sunday gathering? What is distinctive to us as followers of Jesus? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? And today I, I want to pose this question to all of you. This question of why do we exist? Why do we exist? How many of you know Jesus was the first missionary? Jesus came down from heaven to earth. He left his comforts. I know the slides are very beautiful. I did them myself. I tell you, man, canva.com, C-A-N-V-A.com. Canva, if you're listening, up for sponsorship. <laughs> so, so, follow me, okay? So, Jesus, first missionary, heaven to earth, yeah? He left the comforts of heaven, he left the, the adoration, the, the praise of, of heaven, and he came down to earth, humbled himself, was born in, in a lowly manger, and died a, a horrible death. That was Jesus. You know, Jesus did long distance. And you know, for a person to do long distance, you need a lot of perseverance. You need a lot of grit. You need a lot of integrity. You need a drive. You need... Yeah, I'm describing myself. (laughs) So, Jesus, missionary, heaven to earth. And, And the mission of Jesus was... is 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 probably most adequately summed up in the most iconic Bible verse in Christian history. And that is John 3.16. And we can all memorize it, but it says this, What? For God so loved the world that He and shall not but have and in some translations it says but have eternal life. Yes? And for most of us when we hear that verse, when we preach that verse, our conception and our perception of eternal life is, God has a mention for you, God has a mention for you, it's like Oprah, He has a mention for you and you, and, and that is our perception of eternal life, right? You have a swimming pool! And, right? And, and we, we talk about it that way, you know? It's like, oh yeah, when you receive Jesus, you no longer have hell, and you have heaven and a mansion. It's all going to be great, right? But if, if that is our understanding of gospel, then we have reduced the gospel to an evacuation plan. 
The gospel is not simply an evacuation plan. In John 17, John go, uh, Jesus goes on to define what eternal life is. He says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 3.16, the invitation to salvation is not simply an invitation to an evacuation plan, but it's an invitation to know Him. And that is what is promised to you and me. That we will know Him. We will know Him intimately. We will know Him. We will be able to recognize Him. And this not knowing is not just a theoretical knowledge. It's not just understanding concepts and jargons. It's knowing Him intimately having an actual relationship with Him. Most Christians today, they come to church with a buffet uh, ideology. Like if I, were to, if, if I were to go to a buffet later, okay, imagine if I go to a buffet and I'm like, so much food here, I'm going to stock up for a week. And so I, I eat and I eat and I eat and I eat a week's full of, of nutrition. And then I'm like, okay, I don't have to eat for the rest of the week. And then next Sunday, I go and I have a buffet again. Isn't that such a commentary on, the, on the, t- the typical Christian today? That we come to church and we're like, feed, 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 and we get stuck up for the week. And we're like, okay, I'm going to survive. I'm going to trudge on. I'm going to finish out this week. And then next Sunday, I get to eat again. But how many of you that that's, know that that's not sustainable? That's dysfunctional. That's not healthy. Give us this day our daily bread. There is an aspect of sustainability that we are called to live in. Every day, knowing Him, encountering Him, recognizing Him. I think one of the main things that we exist to do is that we exist to help people know God. As a leadership team, as a church, as a body, we exist to help each other know God and recognize Him every day in our lives regardless of the circumstance, situation. We will know Him and recognize Him. Amen? Come on. I'm preaching today. I was wearing a shirt, but then I took off the shirt because I'm like, I'm going to wear a t-shirt because today I'm going to preach, not teach. You know? No one of those days. Okay. Let's look at the Bible to make it this summer legal. Let's go. Mark chapter 5. Okay. Mark chapter 5. Are we ready? Okay, let's read this together. Go. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him, and in always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. To sum up, this guy messed up. Okay, next verse. When he saw Jesus, this guy, from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Okay, let's, let's uh, remember that. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? 
And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Next verse. Now a large herd of swine, that's a fancy word for pig, was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons backed him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Thanks for reading that last chunk of scripture with me. So just to recap, okay, here we have a demonized man. Okay? He was plagued with demons. Uh, some translations say that he was naked. He was living in the tomb. He, they tried to chain him down, but the chains couldn't hold him. And he, he broke the chains. And, and this man was, was horribly plagued by demons. Right? And, 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 and Jesus uh, uh, spoke to them and, and said, uh, What is your name? And he or they replied, Legion. Okay, legion is a Roman term. Okay, it's in like the army, you have uh, squad, you have platoon, you have company, you have battalion. Yeah? And likewise, in the Roman army, they had legions. And a legion traditionally would number anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so scholars have come to the assumption that, that when he replied legion, he was effectively saying that there are 2,000 or 6,000 guys living inside of me. And he was plagued by demons. And it manifested in the way he lived. He lived in seclusion. He lived alienated from community. Let's go back one slide. So this man, okay, plagued by demons, have a whole legion of demons inside of him. What happened? He said when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. I hope you're catching that. He said, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. I, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage of scripture, I've come to a conclusion that no demon can stop me from worshipping Jesus. See, he had all these demons in, inside of him. He was plagued, he was oppressed. But yet, when he saw Jesus, he immediately recognized him and ran and worshipped him. Could it be that that verse that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God actually stands truer than we think it does? That no demon in hell, no power, no principality can stop us from recognizing Jesus and worshipping him. Amen? But the sad story is that the Bible accounts for a group of men who had numerous interactions with Jesus. Time after time, they saw him. Time after time, they, they, they interacted with him. Time after time, they had exchanges with him. But not one of them recognized him. And these men were the Pharisees. See, here we have a demonized man, legion of demons. When he saw Jesus, instinctively recognized him. And, and it, it, not just that, he, he saw him and he said, you are the son of the most high God. And here we have a, a group of men, Pharisees, who had numerous opportunities to recognize him, but could not. So it, it brings us to that question, what was going on in the Pharisees' lives? What was going on there? 
that they could not recognize Jesus even when he showed up to them in the flesh. And I think we, we have to pay attention to, to this group of people because in many ways, the Pharisees and what they stood for and how they live and, and, and they, they pretty much stand for the modern church today. See, the Pharisees were, were men who were well-versed in the scripture. They know the Bible back and forth, and some of them uh, have, have gone for training as young as five years old, grew up in, in the synagogues. They were trained, they were well-versed biblically. They spent most of their days in the synagogue, and Pharisees were not uh, simply just full-time ministers. They just stayed in the synagogues. The, the, uh, historically, Pharisees were also middle-class businessmen, so they were financially uh, comfortable. Isn't that most of us today? You know, most of us grew up in church. Most of us are pretty well-versed biblically. Most of us are financially comfortable. And so, what was going on in their lives that, that hindered them from recognizing Jesus? Could it be that we are susceptible and we are prone to that same thing as well? Amen? I believe the, the, the key to, to recognizing what was in the Pharisees' lives would be Jesus' address to the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, Jesus begins to address the Pharisees. And uh, it's, it, this chapter is a chapter full of woes, you know, woe to you, Pharisee. You know, and, and, and it's, it's a really long chapter and I want to encourage you to read it. But today I'm just going to pick up a couple of verses and uh, you can look at the rest of the woes yourself and your home. But let's look at Matthew 23 for your Bible. I would love for you to turn to it. Chapter 4, Woes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. It says, it says this, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Instead, we have to understand the context to this verse. How many of you know where the law began? Where did the law begin? With Moses, right? With the Ten Commandments. And so it started with ten. By the time of Jesus' arrival to the earth and his interaction with the Pharisees, there were more than 613 laws in effect. And many of these laws were instituted by the Pharisees, by the religious elite. And they would, would add these laws and they would put these things into practice uh, on top of the initial law that was given by God. How many of you know that? And the, the, the sad thing is that many of these laws were not so much divine in nature, but they were personal preferences. For example, if you came into church today and you wore, um, you know, last time they have skinny jeans, but then it's black on one side and white on the other side. Those look horrible. And, and so you come in wearing those jeans and as a religious elite, I'm like, I do not like those jeans. And then I'm like, I'm going to write a law. And like, henceforth it is decreed that thou shall not wear skinny of jeans of multiple colors. <laughs> Period. 
And there was a lot of the laws that were brought into effect. It was all personal preferences. And, and what we, the, they begin to notice is that these laws uh, begin to segregate people from the house of God. They begin to ostracize people and begin to, to put them away and saying that you need to get all these things fixed and worked out before you get into the house of God. You need to obey all these laws. You need to be an elite like me. You need to have it all together. But how many of you know that when God gave the law to Moses, it was not uh, meant to be a tool to separate people from his presence. The law was never meant to separate people from him. It was meant to draw people to him. The law was given as a tutor. This is what Paul says, as a tutor to bring people to Jesus Christ. The law was designed to bring about man's awareness of their need for God. It was not meant to push people away. It was meant to draw them in. But by the day of the Pharisees, the law shifted from being something that drew people in to something that kept people up. And that is what Jesus came to address. Jesus came to fix. On the Sermon on the Mount, he, he put all the laws on steroids, even to the point to which the Pharisees could not accomplish it, to prove one point. You need me. You need me to accomplish these things. It's an invitation. And so, these were, were, were the Pharisees. It, it turned it into something that segregated Pharisees, fulfilled these laws and termed themselves as the religious elite. As a church today, we are, da- we are in danger of spiritual elitism. Of spiritual elitism, of terming ourselves as elites and keeping people up. We may not do it to the extent of the Pharisees, of keeping people out. But I think elitism is expressed mainly in two forms. One, I believe, is, is ostracizing, is ridiculing, is keeping people out. But I think another expression of elitism is withholding. Not making sense. We're in danger of that. We're in danger of being elitist in our faith, of, of thinking that people do not deserve what we have because they don't have it worked out. We're in danger of spiritual elitism. One of my favorite stories um, from my, my time in, in Bethel, um, this happened several years before I, I came uh, to school. But um, there was an interesting phenomenon that happened uh, whenever the leaders would gather to pray. They prayed in a side room, and this room had, had uh, these large uh, open glass panes, and it would uh, overlook this huge field. And uh, one day while the leaders were praying before the service, a roadrunner came up to the glass pane and began to tap the glass pane as these leaders were praying. How many of you know what a roadrunner is? Beep, beep. Beep, beep. Yeah. So beep, beep came to, to the prayer meeting. And, and they were like, and, and these were guys who grew up in Reading. They grew up in, in, in that area and they've never seen a roadrunner in their lives. They're like, I, do roadrunners even come here? Do roadrunners even go here? But strange enough, this roadrunner would come up to, to the room and he would tap on, on the glass pane like, beep, beep, you know, and they're still praying. And they're like, okay, that's interesting. And so a week passed and the, the next week, you know, they were having a pre-service prayer again for the, for the Sunday service. And as they was praying, True enough, the roadrunner showed up right on cue. Beep, beep, you know? It was like, and they were like, do roadrunners show up for prayer meetings? That's, 
super interesting. And that happened for months. For months, this roadrunner was faithful in the small things. He was faithful in the little things. He came for the prayer meetings. And he was there, faithfully on the dot. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is the prophetic bird. This is like, what is God saying? And so, and so this was like the miracle bird, right? You know, this bird that was showed up for prayer meetings. Like, oh, this is perfect. This is great. And, uh, and so this became a, a symbol of, of hope for the community. They were like, oh my gosh, this, this, this shows us that, that, that God is doing something in our midst. And so um, several months passed and um, one day the janitor was, was cleaning uh, one of the uh, rooms in the church uh, and it was a, a whole wing that they, they built out. And uh, so the janitor was cleaning and uh, he left the door open as he was cleaning. And then Roadrunner shows up. It's like, oh my gosh, the miracle bird is here. This is so cool. And so, and so the janitor decided to do an experiment and he, he put his stereo down. This shows you how old this story is. He put his stereo down and then he started playing worship music and he sat there. And as he sat there, the, the roadrunner would walk up to him and the roadrunner would just worship as well. I'm, but I'm not saying that the, the, the roadrunner took the wings and like... <laughs> no, but... But the roadrunner will just stand there and the janitor did this experiment. So he, he turned it off and the roadrunner will just walk away. And then when he turned it back on, the roadrunner will come back and will stand in front of the janitor as, as he, he, he sang and as he worshipped. And so they were like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. So uh, he, was, he was done with cleaning and he was walking out of the building. And all of a sudden, uh, um, there was another man in, in that wing and he opened the door. And he, he opened it uh, with such ferocity that, that it made a loud noise and he startled the roadrunner. And the roadrunner jumped up and ran straight into the window and died. The miracle bird died. And so, and so the roadrunner ran, beep, beep, beep. <laughs> and, and, and mind you, this was the miracle bird of, of several months. This was the symbol of hope. And so, the senior pastor was like, we're going to raise it from the dead. And so, and so he, he went and he was like, full of faith. He was like, I'm going to pray for the bird. And he was like, I can't use the whole hand, so I'll use two fingers and, and pray. And so he went over and uh, he was like, trying to raise it from the dead. Um, nothing happened. And so, and so they, they, they buried the, the roadrunner and the, the senior pastor went back to uh, his office and he was just dialoguing with God. It's like, God, what, what does this mean? You know, you brought this faithful bird to our congregation and, and it was, it's a symbol of hope. Like, what are you doing? Why is it dead? Why, is it, why, why, why did it not come back to life? Like, God, what are you saying? And then he heard God speak audibly and God said, to, said this to him. He said, whatever I'm allowing my Holy Spirit to bring into the house, if it does not have an outlet, to go out from, it's going to die in the house. I think that speaks for all of us as individuals, as the church. Whatever the Holy Spirit does in our midst, if it does not have an outlet, if it does not have an expression of ministry, it's going to die here. How many of you are familiar with the Dead Sea? Do you know that the Dead Sea is not dead because of a lack of nutrients? but because it receives nutrients from all these surrounding mountains around it and these nutrients are flowing in, but there is no output. 
And so the, the sea is just full of nutrients and it's so full to the point that no life can be sustained in the sea. Could it be that we could come to a place as a church where we're so fed and so nourished and so full of nutrients and have so much of a good thing that it ends up becoming dysfunctional? That we cannot sustain life here. We exist to help people know God. Not just we. Leadership. Pulpit people. We, as a community, as believers, as Christians, exist to help people know God. We exist to be witnesses. Does that make sense? Come on, help me preach. I want us to look at uh, another passage of Scripture, and this is Matthew 16. And uh, this is uh, probably the, the first time that Jesus mentions the word church. And, uh, you know, I've taught this many times, and we know church is not a monument. It's a movement of people. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means called out ones. It means the people of God. And this is what uh, Jesus said to, to uh, Peter. And he said this, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now watch this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We're all familiar with this passage of scripture, yes? And this is basically the mantra, and this is basically the, the commissioning statement for the, the, found, the, the founding of the church, that we will build this thing, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen? When we look at the word gates of hell, okay, how many of you picture like an actual gate jumping, a gate called hell, and, and, and it's a gate, and it's large, it's rusty, it's jumping, and you gate, you will not prevail. I don't think the, the, the just me, and I don't think the passage means that. Okay, what is a gate? Okay, if you were to build a fortress for yourself, you know, you have the walls, and then you have the gates up. Okay, you are not going to go into your fortress through the walls, right? You're going to open up the gates and then you're going to walk in, right? A gate is an access point, okay? And what Jesus is saying to Peter is that, build my church and these access points into hell will not prevail. See, we have to understand that hell was not made for people. The Father did not create and design hell for you and me. It says in his Bible that, that he is willing that none shall perish. It's not designed for you and me. It's designed for the enemy. But humans, through our decisions, consciously make a decision to spend a life apart from God. And what Jesus is saying to Peter, that the church's existence is that none will be able to access hell. None will go to hell. That's the reason for our existence. And when you watch this, can we have the, the next slide up? It says, and I also say to you, that word Peter, his name Peter, is the word Petros. Okay? And on this rock is the word Petra. Everybody follow me? Petros and Petra. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We have to know what the word Petros is. Petros literally means a small rock or a small pebble. And Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you are a small rock or small pebble. And on this Petra, 
I will build my church. What does the word Petra mean? If you were to look at it, and, and uh, most people say, oh, Petra means a bigger rock. But if you actually look at the Hebrew uh, uh, translation for what the word Petra means, Petra means a structure made up of multiple small rocks. And what Jesus is saying that, that we, we've often confused it when we say that, oh, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you are the rock on which I built my church upon. He's not saying that. He's saying, Peter, you are one of the rocks which I'm going to use to establish this church because it's not just a one-man effort. It's not just an effort that is confined within the clergyman, but it's a collective effort. All of us are called to do this together. It's collective. It's Petra. I used to think that that as a, a pastor, it's my role to inspire and equip you and then you will go out and evangelize and, and save the world. And then when I was a lay person, I was like, oh, it's not my job to evangelize, it's the pastor's job to evangelize. And then I've come to the conclusion that when I assume this way and then when I was there and I assume this way, that actually nothing gets done. You know, but, but it's not the, the great omission, it's the great commission. Jesus did not designate some of us to do the works of the kingdom and for the rest of us to fund the works of the kingdom. I'm so glad that when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, he didn't say, oh, rich young ruler, let me show you my balance sheet, my expenses, and uh, you can fund my ministry and we'll all be okay. No. He said to the rich young ruler, give it all up and follow me. It's not optional for some. And any theology that you have that excludes you from the work of the kingdom is heretical in nature. Any, any theology that you have that, that brings you to a conclusion that I don't have to participate in this thing, I get to be excluded from it, that's heretical. Jesus did not say that. He said, you will all go and make disciples. Amen. Let's look at Matthew 23, and this is another uh, of Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. I read a different version. What is Jesus essentially saying to the Pharisees? He's saying this, you do your religious requirement. You do what is uh, the bare minimum. You do these religious acts, these practices. You pay your tithe. Great. But you have neglected the other matters. Faith, mercy, justice. And isn't that a commentary on, on so much of the church today that we do what, you know, it's, it's the basic requirement. We come to church on Sunday. We try to come on time. We worship. We pay our tithe, we give our offering, we write our summer notes, and then we leave. But we've neglected the other matters. Read the whole thing. That is not the, the pinnacle of the Christian life. Jesus is saying that if you desire to be my followers, if you desire to come after me, the Great Commission is something that you should embrace. 
Am I making sense? Any theology that excludes us from the work of the kingdom is heretical in nature. What is the work of the kingdom then? What is the purpose of a church? What is our reason for existence? What is distinctive to us as a people? We exist to help people know God. We are on the earth to fulfill the mission of Jesus, bringing people into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not optional. It is a requirement for every believer. And this church is an all-or-nothing church. We're not going to just be contented with doing 20 30%, even 95% of what he said. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. I'm making sense. Come on, love me. <laughs> so hard sometimes. One of the greatest evangelists of all time was a man named Charles Finney. Uh, he's one of my favorites. And this morning before I close, I'm going to cast a vision and show you what is possible. Charles Finney is, is a great man. And how many of you remember the words of Jesus? He said, greater works shall you do. The kingdom is one that goes from glory to glory. And what we see on and from Charles' life, we get to live on a greater level. We get to go to a higher plane. And I want to show you what is possible through someone who, who is willing to take a step of faith, who is willing to step out and, and not be contented with seeing what God can do for him. He lived a life and he saw what God could do through him. And I want to talk a bit about Charles Finney. And Charles Finney uh, would be credited today as the father of modern-day revivalism. He was a lawyer before he came to ministry. And he would ride from town to town preaching the gospel. His meetings would set the template of the modern-day revival meeting. And through his ministry, an estimate of half a million people got saved. Craziness. It was said that Charles would simply just enter a city and people would fall to the ground deeply convicted of sin and get saved. He had like AOE effect. You know, you walk in and people would just fall on the ground and get saved. Shopkeepers closed their businesses, posting notices, urging people to attend Feeney's meetings. The population of the town increased by two-thirds during the revival, but crime dropped by two-thirds over the same period. That was Charles Feeney. He saw what God could do through him. And this is, by Finney's account, the most amazing display of God's power in his life. It said that he came one day as he went to visit a cotton factory at New York, a small town near Utica. Prior to his visit to the factory, more than 500 converts were reported saved in the short time he had been in Utica. Everyone in the area had heard what was going on and people were divided. A great number of those against the meeting were openly opposing it. As Finney walked into the cotton mill, one of the opponents of the meeting, a young lady employee, saw him looking at her co-employee. She began to laugh. Some writers said she made a cynical remark about Finney and his meeting. In a spirit of prayer, Charles Finney simply looked at this young lady without saying a word. He looked at her. As he kept looking at her, being grieved by her criticism, the lady stopped working as she had broken a thread. She became so upset that she couldn't repair the thread and start again. And then the Spirit of God mightily convicted her of her sin to the point that she began to weep. 
Soon her companions were convicted and began to weep as well. A chain reaction occurred as hundreds began to be overcome by their lost condition. The factory owner seeing these was deeply moved himself and said, Stop the mill and let the people attend to religion. For it is far more important that our souls be saved than the factory run. All the workers were assembled in a very large room and Finney said, A more powerful meeting I scarcely ever attended. Within a few days, nearly every employee, some accounts say all, was saved. Several authors said that 3,000 employees in that factory got saved. All he did was walked in, looked at the lady, and the Spirit of God came upon her and created a chain reaction. And everyone in the factory got saved. How many of you want God to do that through you? How many of you desire for something like that? To go into rooms and literally see atmosphere shift, literally see heaven invade. There's not just a song that I sing, it's not just a theory or concept, but it's something I get to experience. Charles Finney had that. And we go from glory to glory. Greater works shall you do. How many of you are expectant of what can God do through a community that's fully yielded to Him and His purposes? Amen? And so, if, if I can use John for John, can you stand here? And so, let's say John is Charles Finney, okay? Okay, I even prepared, haven't prepared a mask for you. You can wear this. So, He's Charles Finney. Great. And so, uh, Sarah, can I have you? Can you stand here? Yes. All John needs to do is just look at someone. And they'll be convicted. <laughs> okay, so, okay, we have Sarah here. Everyone follow me. Okay, Sarah is here. Sarah represents where we are at as a church, yes? Okay, can, can I... Hey, 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 pay attention. <laughs> so Sarah represents where we're at as a church. Everyone following me? Can I ask all of you a question, okay? As a community, how many of you gave your life to Jesus in this church? Show of hands. Show of hands. How many of you gave your life to Jesus in this church? Show of hands. Got saved here. Got saved here. One, two, three. Got saved here. Okay. I am so thankful for these people who gave their life to Jesus in this church, who got saved here. But how many of you have this thing inside of you that says, there must be more? There must be more. If, if the reason for our existence is helping people know God, then shouldn't we see more people know God? Come on. And so this is where we are at as a church. We are a church who now understands we exist to help people know God. But it's so far. Finney is so far. You know, we, we have all these steps to take, you know, from here. Like, how do we get there? And most of us, when we look at Finney way afar from there, we, we go, it's not possible. God cannot do that in my life. And we immediately analyze ourselves into some form of paralysis. And we're like, God cannot do it. I'm not going to do it. Someone else will do it. But what if today we take a small step of faith? And tomorrow we take another step of faith. And we keep taking steps of faith. Steps of faith. Finny, don't move. You're dead. 
we're going to move, we're going to move, we're going to move, and then one day, we get here. What if we can take a small step of faith today? What if, come on, follow me, what if? How about all it takes this morning is for you to make a decision, to take a step of faith, to do something uncomfortable, to get out of your seats for a change. And then one day, you'll see that happen. And it's not something that God will do for you. It's something that God is going to do through you. And so, today I'm going to encourage you and uh, this is what we're going to do. First step is we want you to start inviting your friends. Say invite. How many of you want the people around you to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? I want to encourage you. Begin to invite. Begin to pray through who are some of the people do I, I, I want to reach in my community, people around me. The sobering truth is that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And the people around you may be good in nature, but if they don't encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive them into their heart, they're not going to go to heaven. And hell is a very real place. Next thing we're going to do is we're going to inspire. We're going to inspire them to make a decision for Jesus Christ. We're going to create an environment where the Holy Spirit is present, where the love of the community is here. We're going to model what heaven is going to be like. A place of honor, a place of love, a place where Jesus is. And in that environment, in these conversations, in that interactions with you, they will encounter Him and be inspired to make a decision to follow Jesus, just like you did. Amen? And after that, we're going to integrate. We're going we're gonna to have them be a part of our family, not an extended cousin, not someone far off. We're going to have them be a part of our family. We're going to integrate them in our life groups and we're going to begin to do life with them. We're going to begin a journey with them and show them the ropes, if you will. Show them what it means to live a life for Jesus. Amen? And so the three steps, let me recap. It's invite, inspire, integrate. 